preparing my own heart for what, what I wanted to share in, in transition com- coming out of worship. I love that last song, too. Come on. So good. And, um, and, and I was, I was kind of laughing inside a little bit because I kept having these flashbacks to me being this little kid. I grew up in the Episcopal Church when I was young. And, uh, and, and, and how often I would sing things and pray things, and I had no idea what I was talking about. And, uh, and, and one of them was the doxology, which is still one of my favorite songs today. I'm not going to sing it for you. Don't get nervous. Don't get nervous. And, um, but, but, but the, you know, the words are praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise him, all creatures. And it's supposed to be here below. But when I was a little kid, I thought we were all singing, hear me low. All creatures hear me low. Thank you, Jordan. And, and, and then it goes on by saying, praise him above ye heavenly host. Now, I didn't know that was referring to creatures above in heaven. I thought it meant that the first group of creatures were supposed to sing louder than the second group of creatures. I'm not kidding. This is what I really thought, right? And which I love that because that was my context as a little kid. In school, right, you would sing in rounds. I don't even they even do that anymore, right? You break the group, you break the classroom up into three groups and you get this group singing, right? And, and then once they get to a certain place in the song, the second group starts at the beginning of the song and then the third, do they even do that anymore with little kids? I don't even know if they do that anymore. They should, they should. Maybe that's why the country is suffering the way that it is. We don't teach our children how to, children how to sing in rounds anymore. And, and when you were a kid, the goal was that you would sing louder than the other group that was singing. So that was my picture of what was happening. All these creatures were competing against each other, and I still couldn't figure out what hear me low even meant. But I kept singing it. And the reason I kept singing it is because when I did, I felt close to God. I felt close to him. All the creeds that we learned and I could recite all the prayers that I memorized before I was able to read I knew them because I grew up saying them and I'll still remember when I was old enough to read those kinds of words I remember reading the doxology and go huh it doesn't say hear me low it's here below and like I had my revelation I'm sharing all of that to say because I love what Amy was sharing There's so many times in this life where we just don't understand. But that's part of the beauty of John chapter 3, which we're not even talking about tonight. And Jesus challenging Nicodemus is that we've got to learn in this life to trust our heart. And that trust that our understanding will one day catch up. But if we hold our heart back until our understanding comes, we'll miss out on so much that this life has to offer. I think that's part, it's a big statement when Jesus said, unless we become like little children, because children know how to let their heart run even when their mind is so far behind. And so if that's you, if maybe you're watching online somewhere in the world, maybe you're in the room tonight and you're brand new to Christianity, or maybe you're not brand new to Christianity, but you're brand new to how we're worshiping and the songs that we're singing, or even the idea that God is alive and speaks to someone, and then they come up and share that as a message. Maybe you don't understand any of that. The question I would ask you is, is what do you feel in your heart? What do you feel in your heart? And if it causes you to feel close to God, then you keep doing it. And know that this is a safe place to ask your questions and trust that understanding will come. Hear me low. Come on. Hear me low. So good. Kids just don't care, right? Hear me low. 
I'm not going to read all of it tonight, but I'm going to talk about it. We're in a series on prayer. It's going to take us through next week. I'm going to start a new series in December called Emmanuel, God with us are you. You're going to like it. It's going to be good. But tonight we're going to keep talking about prayer, and I'm going to come at it, I think, from an interesting perspective, and it's based out of Exodus 28, 15 to 30. A, a picture is going to pop up there of Aaron, the high priest, that Exodus 28 is referring to, and 15 to 30 gives really detailed descriptions about what he was supposed to look like when he was ministering. You could think of this, it was his uniform. And all throughout the Old Testament, we're giving just, we're given elaborate detail of what priests were supposed to wear, things that they were supposed to say, where they were supposed to stand, all of the ornate utensils of the temple, the way the temple was supposed to be built. I mean, it is fascinating the detail that we get in here. And it's not because God is OCD. It's because he is painting a prophetic picture for us that is supposed to be used to understand what we would one day get to in the New Testament. And here in the priest's clothing, we're not going to talk about all of it tonight. I'm just going to talk about one small part of it. But the part of it that we're going to talk about, you might not even even ever, ever heard of these words before, but they're in there. In fact, they are significant because of the way that they were used. That in this pocket right here on his chest that looks like a plate, right, with all those gemstones, each of those representing one of the 12 tribes of Israel, it's called the breast piece, that, that it's actually a linen pouch, and in that linen pouch were two stones. And those stones were called the Urim and the Tumim. I can't even say it. Because I just grew up calling it the Urim and the Thumim. Because that's what you say when you live in Virginia. But it's really Urim and Tumim. Tumim. The teenagers are going, I didn't even know they had memes back then. I know. I know. Dad jokes. Dad jokes. You got to work them in. Urim and Tumim. It's fascinating because these two stones were used to discern the will of God in significant moments of decision for Israel's history and for people's lives. People can't even agree on what they were and how they were used. People can't, can't even agree on what these words meant. There's the closest consensus, which I'm going to give to you tonight, which I think are the right ones. But the Bible never explains what they are, never explains how they were used. You would think something so significant that we would be given great detail, especially for the role that they played in Jewish society in Old Testament days. It's believed that this word urim is based on the root word you are, which is Hebrew for light or fire. And then the suffix I am makes it plural. So most people, the most common consensus is that it simply means lights. Urim means lights, plural. And then you get to Tumim, 
And the root of that is based on a word, tom, T-O-M, which means perfection or completeness. But this word also has the same suffix that urim has, I am, which makes it plural. Which means that if we were to somehow translate this into a language that we understand, it means lights and perfections. Lights and perfections. Listen to Numbers 27, 21. It says, when direction from the Lord is needed... Joshua will stand before, we've moved forward in time, right? We've moved forward past Aaron as the high priest. Now we move forward in time. Joshua, right, is the new Moses. Eleazar is the new Aaron. Joshua will stand before Eleazar the priest who will use the Urim, one of the sacred lots cast before the Lord to determine his will. This is how Joshua and the rest of the community of Israel determine everything that they should do. Are you kidding me? Not some things. Not just certain things on special occasions, but it says everything that they should do. Whenever a significant decision had to be made, Joshua is supposed to go to the high priest. He's supposed to reach into this pouch, and somehow these two gems are supposed to reveal the will of God. Fascinating. Lights and perfections. Urim and Tumim. Some believed that they were used to draw out of the pouch and one stone was God's yes and the other was God's no. Again, we don't know exactly how they were used. So there's just conjecture, right? It's, it's, it's like the lottery. It's like a casting of lots that we see in the New Testament that they would put their hand in the pouch and they were, the stones were indistinguishable from one another and they would pull one out, it would mean yes, or pull one out, it would mean no. Josephus, who was a famous or ancient historian, writes that they would often be bright before victory or darkened before impending doom, as, the, as though they were imbued with some type of supernatural power to give direction. Others believe that the stones were worn by the high priest super, and supernaturally enabled him to perfect, perfectly discern God's will, meaning that they didn't use the stones as a lottery, but they were symbolic of the sense of God had a will, God had a plan, and he had a purpose, and when the priests wore, wore them, that it was symbolic of this priest standing before God, and that he would always be able to know what God wanted. I love that there are mysteries in the Bible just like this. I love it. I don't think that they were left out because of some copyist error. I don't think that they were left out because the angels in heaven that were doing the editing lost some pages and then it, the final edition was incomplete. I don't think God hides it from us to frustrate us. I think he puts things just like this in the Bible to be mysteries because mystery creates curiosity and he wants us to be hungry to understand. He wants to stir up something inside of us that says, what is that about? And then he has our attention. And then the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, begins to speak things to us, begins to connect it to other parts of Scripture. How about Psalm 119, 105, which many of you are familiar with? It says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. A lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That God has a plan, he has a purpose, and he wants to illuminate that for us. This is my conclusion about the Urim and the Tumim. That God wants you and I to be enlightened by his perfect will. 
He wants you and I to be enlightened by his perfect will. And the urim and the tumim are plural, lights and perfections, because there is no end to his plans and his purposes for our lives. It's plural because God always has another plan and another purpose that's waiting for you around the corner. It's not as though in your life you're going to get to some point where God's going to go, that's all I got for you. You're on your own from here on out. Every day for the rest of your life, until you breathe your last, God has plans and purposes for you, and they are perfect, and he wants to illuminate the path to them. He wants you to be enlightened by those revelations, and there will never be a time when we aren't dependent on him for revelation. That's one of my favorite parts. I love the idea that the priest, this idea that it wasn't as though the Urim and the Tumim were training wheels for discerning the will of God. It's not as though at some point the high priest would say, I figured it out. I don't need these anymore. Now I know what God knows without these instruments. I think these instruments are a prophetic picture in many ways, but one of them is this, is that you and I need God to speak to us and to give us direction in this life. We're never going to outgrow the voice and the direction of the Father. But we're not handing out gemstones on the way out tonight. I know you're disappointed. You're not going to be able to show up for your family Thanksgiving dinner with a brand new fanny pack with two gemstones in there and say, just bring me all your decisions. I got, I'm going to figure it all out. It's prophetic imagery. The priest was exquisitely adorned because he was prophetically adorned because they represent for something for you and I for today. And what we find is in Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16, is that just as the Israelites had a high priest, guess what? We have one too. And his name is Jesus. It says, so then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings that we did, yet he did not sin. So let us come, listen to what it says, boldly to the throne of our gracious God. Can, can we agree that the Israelites, they came boldly in their times of decision making because they had this great promise. Because they knew the high priest had these instruments and when they used them the way that they were supposed to be used, they always correctly discerned the will of God. How much confidence do you think that instilled in them? I think a lot. That's why the writer of Hebrews is building on the imagery of the Old Testament because they knew these stories, these things that we're talking about today. Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God there we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. You and I have a high priest. We have an Aaron. We have an Eleazar. And his name is Jesus. We continue on when 
We look in Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living, holy sacrifice, acceptable, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, this, I believe, is a partner text to Hebrews 4 and builds on this idea of the Urim and the Tumim because in order for the priest to come before God, in order for the priest to step into that place of discerning God's will, there were rituals that had to be done. And part of those rituals were certain sacrifices had to be made. And here we see Paul saying, the writer of Hebrews is saying, we have a a great high priest, right? The Bible has many writers, but it's one author. It's all building one narrative and one story for us. And so the writer of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit's inspiring them, hey, you have a high priest. And then Paul comes along, right? And not only do we have a high priest, but also the right sacrifice has been made, and that sacrifice is Jesus. And the way that we build on that sacrifice is that we make a vow of devotion to him, and then now, that's our spiritual act of worship. No more sacrifices have to be made, because Jesus was the perfect and the final sacrifice for all. And when we submit our lives to this idea of being a disciple of Christ, it is as though we are standing with Christ in his place of crucifixion. But it goes on. Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Listen to what it says. So that you may prove what is the will of God that is good, acceptable, and perfect. What? Are you kidding me? The promise is still here. Just as we would have read in Exodus 28, there is a promise through the use of these two gemstones that you can always know the will of God. Paul says, no, 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 that's not history that's time past. That history was prophetically telling of what's to come. That you and I can still know what God's will is for our lives. When you and I come to places of questions, when you and I come to places of decision, we don't have to look back longingly and nostalgically to a time past that has left us out. God says, no, 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 no. You can still know the plans and the purposes that I have for you because you have a high priest who's made a sacrifice for you. And you identify with that sacrifice when you make a vow of devotion to him. And then you can come to me if you, which we're gonna talk about, if you don't conform to the pattern of this world, then you can stand before me and just as they did thousands of years ago, you can have the same confidence today that there is a good and acceptable perfect will for you, lights and perfections. The language is unmistakably, unmistakably similar. It's not a coincidence. Paul here is building on the understanding that the people who would have been reading these letters 2,000 years ago would have connected those dots, and I want to connect them for you today. When Paul says don't conform to the pattern of this world, he's actually teaching us about the positive through the negative. He's telling us what to do by telling us what not to do. He's saying don't conform to the pattern of this world. And and what he's saying is because you have a pattern and his name is Jesus, so don't settle for less. And we teach that the pattern of Christ is understood through his beliefs, it's through his character, it's through his obedience, and it's through his peace. 
So Paul is saying that when you enter into a life of discipleship, you have a high priest, he's made the once and final sacrifice for all people. When you commit your life to the way of Jesus instead of conforming to the patterns of this world, that you can live with the confidence of revelation when you come to a place of decision in prayer. Do not conform to the patterns of this world. Let us conform to the patterns of Christ. And I don't think that it's an accident that Paul is saying to you and to me, if you want to know the good and acceptable perfect will of God, then the way that you're going to do that is through a devoted life of discipleship. It's not Christian magic, people. It's not Harry Potterism where you learn the incantations and then you know. Paul's saying, no, the way that you're going to know the good and acceptable perfect will of God, the way that you come before him with confidence because Jesus is your high priest is because you've devoted your life to him and his ways to pattern your life after his Listen to what 1 Corinthians 2, I'm going to read 10 to 12, then I'm going to jump down to verse 16. It says, but it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit. So this is Paul explaining why he understood so many mysteries. But it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit. For his spirit searches everything and shows us God's deep secrets. Was it shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit. He's talking about people who've made a vow of devotion to Christ. So we can, listen to what he says. So we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. Jumping down to verse 16, but we understand these things for we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. You understand what it's saying, right? Is that when you make a vow of devotion to Christ, because he is your high priest, because he's made the great and final sacrifice once and for all, when you commit yourself to the ways of Christ, then because you have the mind of Christ, you too can discern, which is why Paul uses this language, good, acceptable, and perfect will for your life. It's an incredible promise. It is as though that you are walking around with a urim and a turim inside of you. It's a bold promise. Now, I believe that every person, when you make a vow of devotion to Christ, that you have the mind of Christ. I believe that. I believe that 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is a promise for every person who's made a sincere vow of devotion to Christ. I am not saying, I am not saying that you earn your way into the place of having the mind of Christ through your discipleship journey. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that you and I learn how to think with the mind of Christ through our discipleship journey. There is a vast difference between having the mind of Christ that enables you to discern the good and acceptable perfect will of God. There's a difference between you having the mind of Christ and us thinking with the mind of Christ. Because just because we're given the mind of Christ, it does not fully displace the mind of Adam and Eve that we are born with. 
See, when the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that if any person's in Christ, they're a new creation, the old is gone and the new has come, it doesn't mean that the old disappears. It, it means that the old is gone in the sense that you're not left any longer with just one choice. As devoted followers of Christ, we still have a human nature, but now we're given something else, a higher nature. The Spirit of God living inside of us in the mind of Christ to think and discern and understand spiritual things. This is one of the reasons why discipleship is so important. It's one of the reasons why we talk about discipleship so extensively here is that we want you to grow into a place where thinking with the mind of Christ comes more naturally than thinking with the mind of Adam. It's one of the reasons why in this life that you've got to have people that you're walking with that are a little bit farther along than you are, and there should be some also some people that maybe you're a little bit farther along than they are, because this is part of what this journey in this life is about, learning how to defer to the influence of the Holy Spirit inside of us for the Holy Spirit to become the dominant influencer of our will. It's interesting here that in Romans 12, it says that we would be able to prove the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Again, I think the language is unmistakable. To prove means to know. I think what Paul is saying here is that there are lights and perfections still today for the devoted follower of Christ. That you and I can live with an expectation and a confidence that God has plans and purposes for us and he wants you and I to be enlightened by those plans and purposes. All right, let me throw in a few recaps here. If you're a note taker, God wants you and I to be enlightened by his perfect will, lights and perfections. And there is no end to his plans and purposes for our lives. This is important that you understand this. If you're, if you're wondering in here today and, 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 you're, and you're asking the question, I don't even know if God knows who I am. Not only does he know who, know, does he know who you are, he has plans and purposes for you, for your life. He's got plans and purposes for your marriage. He's got plans and purposes for your family. If you're a parent, he's got plans and purposes for your children. He's got plans and purposes for you in your vocation, in your hobbies, in your enjoyments. God, God has this beautiful plan that he's dreamed for you from the foundations of the earth. He's not left us to just stumble through this life hoping that we're going to figure things out. There will never be a time when we aren't dependent on him for revelation. You, you know, if you are a parent, sometimes being a parent helps you understand your relationship with God. But sometimes it can also inhibit it. Can we agree on that? Because we have limits that God doesn't have. See, this idea of us always needing God's revelation and direction for the rest of our lives even if you live to be 125 and you become the most righteous person that has ever walked on this earth next to Jesus, you know what? You're still going to be just as dependent on God for revelation as you are today. It, it, we get hung up sometimes because we can think, if we think with our 
the mind of Adam and Eve, that we're supposed to grow out of that. Because what you don't want, if you are a parent, is for your children to desperately need you for the rest of your life for every decision that they're ever going to make. You, you track it with me? You're, you're, one of your goals of parenting is that your child will one day step into a place of wisdom. Some of you say, amen, praise the Lord, right? The, the idea of us being a parent now is that we're, we're trying to get our children ready so that they need us, not that they ever stop needing you at all, but that, so that they're going to need us in different ways. But that's not true in our relationship with God. We're always going to be the children, he's always going to be the father, and we're always going to be dependent on him. And with the mind of Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can learn to discern God's perfect will for our lives in all circumstances. You understand the weightiness of these promises? The Bible, this is not hyperbole, people. This is not God overstating the case of the human experience to try to win you over. He's not exaggerating the outcome to try to draw you in. No, no, that's what we do to each other. But that's not what he does for us. These are bold promises, and they should inspire great faith in us. So I want to update the prayer formula. The series is building on itself. The prayer formula that I've been giving you is this, worship him, thank him, petition him, and that's prayer. If, if you've not seen that, you should go back and listen to the other messages in this series. Worship him, thank him, petition him, that's prayer. It's based on the Lord's Prayer, and then we understand the Lord's Prayer through the lens of Paul teaching, Paul's teaching in Philippians chapter 4. And thank him is not just what most people think it is, which is thanking him for other times where God has answered prayer. Thank him is really more about thanking him for the outcomes of the prayers that you've not even prayed yet because you believe that his will is perfect even if he doesn't do what you want him to do. The idea of thanking him is about surrendering yourself to his will and to his plans and his purposes regardless of what you might be asking for. Thanking him is about acknowledging that he's perfect and we're not. It's about acknowledging that he always has our best interests at heart. It's a part of the Lord's Prayer where it says that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's part of this idea, which I've started to do it myself after this series, is that when I'm in a place of prayer, I'm saying, God, I thank you for the opportunity that I have to champion your will here on this earth in the same way that it's championed in heaven. Thank him. Worship him. Thank him petition him. And I'm adding three steps in each of these, but it's the same step, and it's the step of listen. See, because the, the idea of the urim and the thubim is that you are making an inquiry of God to discern his will for your life, M meaning that prayer should be a conversation and not a monologue. Prayer should be a conversation and not a... Have you ever hung out with somebody who's a monologuer? Yeah, <laughs> so, that's some, 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 some uh, passionate amens out there. You, you know the person, right? You, you, you go out to lunch 
And, and, and it's, just, it's, a, it's like drinking from a, water, a fire hydrant. It's just a stream of consciousness. And maybe every now and again they feel, they feel guilty and they ask you a question, but even in asking you a question, within a matter of minutes, they've somehow turned that around back to themselves. Right? It's the monologuer. But prayer is, is not supposed to just be about us coming to God. It's also an opportunity for him to come to us. And he wants to. Did you know that? He wants to talk to you. He wants to say things to you. I've never heard his audible voice. I like to say I feel his voice. And, and sometimes as, as I'm praying, sometimes as I'm worshiping him, I'll just, I'm, I just pause. It's part of what the idea of Selah is in the Psalms for worship. It's saying when you come to a place of worship, every now and again, just stop and pause and listen. Because God's got stuff that he wants to say to us too. And sometimes it comes through, I might think of someone that I've not thought of before, and I, I realize that that means that I, you know, I'm supposed to pray for them when I get to that place of petition. Sometimes it's a verse of scripture. Sometimes it's a memory. You, this is part of practicing it. You, you learn to recognize the voice of your Father and the way that he speaks and leads and guides and directs. Listen, after you worship, just stop for a few minutes and just quiet yourself and see what might come. After you're done thanking him, working through that part of prayer, again, we talked about in that series, just stop, pause, quiet yourself, and listen. As you work through the petitions that you have for him, as you work through all the things that you're bringing before him, the questions that you're asking periodically as you're, stop, quiet yourself, and listen. God doesn't want to have a transactional prayer life with you. He wants a relational prayer life. He doesn't want a transactional prayer life with you. He wants a relational one. Let me share a few of these thoughts with you. If my decision to pray is based on this question, why should I pray if God already knows what I'm going to tell him? Consider this. The sentiment that creates that question is this. I don't need to pray if God doesn't need me. What about this thought? If my decision to pray is based on this question, why should I pray if God has already predetermined the outcome of the situation? Consider this. The sentiment that creates that question is this. I don't need prayer if I'm not going to get what I want. Can we just agree at the end of the day that prayer is a whole lot less about the petitions that we bring and has a whole lot more to do with the God that we discover in that place? And the feeling that we have when we know that he has discovered us. I love in 1 Thessalonians, I'm not going to read all of it for sake of, the, of time, but 12 through 18. But there's this one little verse in here that is oftentimes a source of consternation for people. And it's verse 17 that says, never stop praying. In the King James, it says, pray without ceasing. I like to tell people that just you need to be free from the demand that you thought 
you knew by what you've been taught that that means that the, if you're a spiritually mature person, you're just constantly praying. I don't think that has anything to do with what Paul's talking about here. Because I don't think that's in keeping with the rest of what we find throughout the New Testament. I think what Paul's saying is make sure prayer is something that you keep coming back to. Pray, pray without ceasing means that for the rest of your life, keep praying. Why? Because you're the child and he's the father. And we should keep coming back to prayer because prayer is our urim and our tumim. It is the pathway to being enlightened by the perfect will of God because Jesus is our high priest who's made the ultimate sacrifice. And when we make a vow of devotion to him, we identify, we benefit from that sacrifice and we commit our lives to conforming to his pattern. We learn how to think with the mind of Christ. And the more we learn to think with the mind of Christ, we will discern the good and the acceptable and the perfect will that God has for us. Did the Israelites keep coming back to the Urim and the Tumim because they just wanted to be enlightened by God's perfect will? Or did the Urim and the Tumim keep them coming back because those objects reminded them of how special it was to be chosen by God, to belong to him, and to know him. I'm going to invite you to stand, and the keys are going to come as we're going to prepare to close the service and have people come for prayer. So I've had this kind of running joke with myself all week that people that have been listening but not listening, been on their phone, Maybe scrolling Facebook. Maybe they're at home and they're, they've got us in the picture in picture, right? So they can at least say they watch, but they're really watching Ted Lasso. <laughs> that, that somebody's going to be at the water cooler or, or whatever they're gathering at, maybe on a Zoom call on Monday, and they're going to say, Hey, did you go to church again this weekend? Yeah, I went. What did the pastor talk about? He's talking about Uma Thurman. Something about Uma Thurman. And I can't figure out how the movie series Kill Bill has anything to do with prayer. All right, that's just my own little internal joke. I've been having fun with that all week. So the picture of Uma Thurman, there you go, right there. Yeah, yeah. If you're just tuning back in and you can't figure out what that is, you should go back and watch the service all over again. I'm just saying. Does God want you to be enlightened by the knowledge of his perfect will? You better believe he does. He does. You think God's gone to all the trouble of creating the majesty of the plan that he has for you just for us to cast it aside? You think the story of creation and the intricate detail that is given there was just for creation? No, 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 no. No. It's because that too is supposed to be a prophetic picture of the intricate detail of how much God has worked to create a plan for you and for me. How about where Jesus talks about if, if he cares for the sparrow, how much does he care for you? If he was that intentional with this natural world that one day is going to pass away, how much more intentionally is he for you and I who are eternal? Does he want you? You better believe he wants you to know. But even more so, he wants you to remember that you too 
just like the Israelites felt in their heart, you too, that you have been chosen to belong to him and to know him, to know him. So keep coming back to prayer. Father, I lift up every person that's here tonight, whether they laughed at my jokes or not. For people that are watching from on home that feel far from you, that prayer has always just been this elusive, mystical thing. Maybe they've bought into some of the lies about prayer that we're going to be unpacking next week together. But if their prayer life has been silent, I pray that something of this message will cause a a prayer voice to break the silence of their spiritual lives. I I have such a picture right now of, of Jesus as we read about stories of him in the Gospels and how he healed people who were mute, touched their mouths, and they were able to speak for the very first time. I have such a sense that he's doing that for some of you right now in a spiritual sense, that you've, you've been mute when it comes to prayer, and you thought that you couldn't, or never thought that you should. I have such a, Jesus just touching your mouth, and even right now, you have such an incredible sense of, of prayers breaking the spiritual silence of your life, and that to, tomorrow's going to be a new day for you that you're going to wake up with words to say, with a prayer to offer, with petitions to bring. For, for some of you, just like Jesus healed deaf ears, he's touching some of you right now. You, 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 your, your prayer life, you, you've had a prayer life, you've not been mute with prayer, but you've been deaf with listening. And that's going to change for you. That tomorrow's going to be a new day. That as you pray and as you listen, I believe that you're going to hear some things for the first time. You're going to feel his presence. You're going to recognize his voice. That you're going to keep coming back to prayer. The Urim and the Tumim of modern day living. Jesus, we thank you that you are our high priest. We thank you that your sacrifice is the final sacrifice for all time, for all people. Help us in the devotion that we have given to you to live our lives faithfully following after your pattern, to no longer conform to the patterns of this world. That we would chase after your belief and your character and your obedience and your peace. And with your mind, we would come boldly before the throne of heaven with a great and humble confidence that the good and the acceptable and the perfect will that you have for each of us, that we can know it so that we can walk in it. In Jesus' name, come on and everybody said together, amen.